Good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks very much, Richie. Uh, many of you will know that uh, I became a father about four weeks ago, uh, and this is actually the first time I've been able to be back uh, in Kirkpatrick on a Sunday morning since then. So I wanted to just take a moment to say uh, thanks very much to all of you uh, who have been praying for us. Uh, things are going well. Um, Emma and Thea are both doing really well and growing and, and all of that. So thanks very much. Uh, it's great to be back uh, here this morning. Uh, shall we pray as we come and have a look at God's word together? Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for this day, uh, this day that you've set apart, that you've called your day in particular, a day when we can meet as your people uh, to come and spend particular time with you. Uh, Lord, we began our service by, by praying that you would open the eyes of our hearts. And we want to repeat that prayer now. Lord Jesus, would you pour out your power and love on us uh, through your spirit as we meet with you in your word. We pray that we would see you high and lifted up. And we pray that uh, for your name's sake. Amen. Okay, well, today we are looking at probably the most famous conversion in history. We're looking at the story of uh, the conversion of a man that the BBC website calls uh, one of, undoubtedly, one of the most important figures in the history of the Western world. Uh, The conversion on the road to Damascus of Saul. Now, we originally planned to look at this passage four weeks ago, which was interrupted uh, by, by events, by me becoming a father, Um, uh, So we're actually looking at this passage a bit out of sequence in our studies through Acts. So I think it would be helpful if we get our bearings uh, very early on uh, as we look at this passage. So look with me at chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, Luke begins this story by saying, Meanwhile, uh, while the Ethiopian eunuch was getting converted, if you remember that, while the gospel was going to Samaria, to northern Israel, meanwhile... Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Well, we met Saul before in Acts already. He's the guy, if you remember, who was holding the coats of the people who were chucking rocks uh, to kill Stephen at the end of chapter 7. And if you remember, that death, Stephen's death, kicked off a massive wave of persecution that drove the early church, most of them, out of Jerusalem. And we find that after that event, Saul becomes almost like the persecutor-in-chief of the church. Luke tells us that he began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, Saul dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. It's probably quite hard to come up with a parallel for Saul today, but if you take somebody like Richard Dawkins with his intellectual zeal and aggressive stance against Christianity and mix him with, say, Jihadi John... Uh, with his murderous uh, rage, you're kind of approaching the sort of threat that Saul faced to the early church. And at the start of today's passage, Luke reminds us that that threat is still hanging over the church. Saul is still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So I think we're meant to get a sense of atmosphere of fear, if you like, at the start of this story. I don't think we have to look too far today in our world to kind of begin to imagine what this might have been like. We heard last week about the murder of 147 Kenyan Christians. And you can imagine what it would be like a little bit, can't you, to be a Christian in Kenya at the moment. You'd be very nervous, I think, of, of 
being anything more than a private Christian. You'd be quite reluctant to speak out, quite reluctant to do anything that might make you known as a disciple of Jesus. There'd be a kind of shyness, a fear. But it's important, I think, to begin this passage thinking along these kind of lines. Because as we read this passage, we need to remember that we are not really Saul in this passage. Okay, We're not Saul. We're, we're much more like the church, the early church. You see, if we read this passage thinking that we're like Saul, then there's a danger that we'll get discouraged. Because if, if you read this passage like we're Saul, then we'll go out expecting a kind of Damascus Road experience. If we're going to get saved, we'll think that's what's going to happen. And we'll get discouraged because we're not told to expect something like that. But if we read this passage thinking that we're a bit like the early church in some way, if we're a bit like the spirit-filled church, then actually we'll be very encouraged. There's something here to encourage us. Just have a look at the end of the passage, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 31. Uh, Luke concludes the story like this. He says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened, and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Something has changed in chapter 9. From verse 1, there's this atmosphere of fear. And at the end of the chapter, the church is encouraged and comforted and living in the fear of the Lord. That seems to be what's changed. Instead of living in the fear of persecution, now the church is living in the fear of the Lord, and so it's comforted and strengthened. Well, that's what we're going to look at today and see what it is that changed, what it is that gave the church this fear of the Lord that so strengthened them. Now, before we get into that, we need to have a little think about our context, I think, because in Northern Ireland, we're not facing the kind of extremes of persecution that the early church was facing um, or that Christians, say, in Kenya are facing. But I still wonder whether a bit of that atmosphere of fear might still be hanging over us and affecting us as we live as Christians. So I was having a look at some statistics and some research that was published by an organisation called the Pew uh, Research Forum. Um, if we can have the first graph up, here we go. They, this is basically a kind of index of persecution taking place in different countries in the world. And I think what they've done quite helpfully is not just come up with one-dimensional more persecution to less persecution, but two dimensions. The bottom axis is, um, you can't read it, but it says government restrictions. So how free or how restrictive is your government um, if, you're, if you're a religious person. And the, the, uh, the, the other axis, the y-axis, is uh, talking about social persecution. How tolerant or not are other people in your society to you being uh, a religious person? The black dot at the bottom there, the, the right-hand dot, that is the average for all countries in the world. Okay, And the red dot is, is the UK. What that's telling us is that, as a society, we are more free. We live in a more tolerant society in governmental terms than most of the world. And that's brilliant, isn't it? That's something to thank God for and to pray that it would continue. We're more free to talk about Jesus here than many places in the world in terms of the the laws. But according to this research, it's actually harder to talk about Jesus on a social level than it is in most countries in the world. We're well above average on that here in the UK. And this this was done in 2013, this research, And I had a look back at when they started doing the research in 2007. If we have the next slide, the red dot was was below average. In about five years, it's massively shot up. Now, I don't know too much about 
what it is that's driving those results. Uh, I didn't have time to look at that. But it, it got me thinking, could that be true? Is there really that kind of social stigma attached to being a Christian in, in this country? Well, I started thinking about this, and I started thinking about just one issue, really, the issue of sex and identity and how Christians are seen to relate to those kind of issues today. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, a couple of nights ago, BBC Two gave a whole hour uh, to talking to the first of a three-part series called Sex and the Church. And I watched um, about half an hour of it, and the point of it seemed to be it was showing how Christianity became this sexually oppressive religion. Can you imagine that? An hour on BBC Two, first of three uh, parts, sex and the church. And then you think about something like the Ashes Bakery case that's got lots of Christians very concerned in this country and people feeling like our rights are beginning to be eroded. Well, I don't know about you, but those kind of things do start to affect me on a a personal level. Uh, I always used to dread uh, my friends uh, asking me what I thought about gay marriage as a Christian. I knew that it would just be difficult to talk about. It would be a struggle to make the gospel look attractive. I wonder if you find that, if you find that actually we have all this talk and it does make you get quite shy as a Christian, quite nervous about speaking about him, not wanting to really stand out maybe quite as much, to have a more sort of private faith. So maybe there is a bit, even though we're not facing bullets, maybe there's a bit of this atmosphere of fear affecting us. So what is there then in this passage to to encourage us, to strengthen us? Well, the answer is the fear of the Lord. And we're going to look really just at the first, uh, first half of our reading. And it's structured around three conversations. Um, but there's a thread that runs through each of them. The first conversation is in verses 1 to 9. Uh, it begins with a blinding light and a voice from heaven. And Saul is reduced to asking Jesus, Who are you, Lord? And then he uh, is instructed to go off into the city and wait for further orders. Conversation 2 is verses 10 to, 16, 10 to 19. Uh, sorry, 10 to 16, and that is the Lord uh, speaking to Ananias. It says that the Lord called to Ananias in a vision, and he instructs Ananias to go and look for Saul. And then conversation 3, verses 17 to 19, uh, Ananias meets up with Saul, and he says... The Lord, Jesus, who you met on the road, has sent me to you. All in all, Jesus is referred to as the Lord 12 times in chapter 9. And it's very obvious, isn't it, as you just skim through those conversations, who it is who's who's in control of these events. The Lord that the Spirit-filled church fears is Jesus, He's the one who converted Saul. He's the one who has power to act in our world. And that's what made the difference. This church, the early church, saw that Jesus was still alive, that even though he's in heaven, he's still involved in our world, and that he had power to change things. And so if if we can get this, this is basically what will help us to be encouraged and strengthened as Christians. If we can get that Jesus is really doing something today, that he's not just a vague sort of God in the sky, but actually Jesus, the guy who lived and died and rose again, and he's now running our world. If we can get that, then that will shift us from this atmosphere of fear and shyness and silence 
and it will help us uh, to live with strength and to be encouraged. What we're going to do is try and take a closer look at that now and the rest of our time um, by looking again at those conversations and looking a little bit more closely at three key moments, one from each of the conversations. And we're going to see what we can really expect if Jesus is Lord. What will our world look like if Jesus is Lord? Okay? So the first conversation, the first moment then, comes when that voice from heaven uh, speaks to Saul. And have a look at what he says, verse 4. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I think that's surprising, isn't it, that that's what the voice says, that a voice from heaven would kind of boom down and say to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is obviously taking what Saul is doing very personally. He sees that what Saul is doing is he persecutes the church as persecution of him. It's almost like they're connected to him. The church is part of him. When Saul attacks the church, he's attacking Jesus, the Lord in heaven. And so here's, and, 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 and Jesus is going to do something about that. He, he strikes Paul, Saul blind, and he makes sure that he has to be led by the hand into Damascus. And he doesn't eat or drink anything for three days. He's not going to be arresting any Christians anytime soon. And so here's the first thing we can expect if Jesus is Lord. We can expect that he will protect his people. He cares about us. We're part of his body. Normally we don't get to see really what Jesus is doing in heaven, do we? He's invisible to us. But in this story we're we're given a glimpse. Heaven kind of opens up and Jesus says that he cares about what Saul is doing. He's deeply concerned with his people's suffering. And because he's king, because he's at the controls of the universe, he can do something about that. Well, I think if if we remember that, we'll be hugely encouraged. When we see Christians on TV getting brutally murdered, or when we think about the Ashes Bakery case, uh, it's easy to think, isn't it, that Jesus has just left us to it, that the world is going down the tubes, and that there's nothing really we can do about that. Well, there probably isn't much we can do about it. But Jesus can do something about it. None of this is happening outside of his control. As we go into our school or our workplace this week, it it might be easy for us to imagine that Jesus is just leaving us to it. He's off in heaven, that's great for him, and we're just left to sweat it out on our own. But let's try and take this image, this voice from heaven, calling Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? We might not see heaven open this week, but let's remember that Jesus is there and he is deeply concerned with what is happening to us. Okay, so Saul is left sitting in darkness now in Damascus for three days, and then we get our second conversation. And this is probably the part of the story that I forget. Uh, Jesus appears a second time, and this time it's in a vision to his disciple Ananias. The Lord gives Ananias directions. He says, go to a certain house in the city and you'll find this guy called Saul. And Ananias says, yeah, Lord, actually I know who Saul is because he's coming here to arrest us. The kind of implication is, what are you doing, Lord? Why would you send me to this guy? I can't understand what you're doing. And that leads us to the second key moment that we're going to have a look at. Have a look at verse 15. 
But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. The Lord is giving Ananias a kind of a sneak preview of his plans, the kind of plans that Jesus is making in heaven that we don't get to see most of the time. Saul is actually going to be a massive part of how Jesus accomplishes his plan to take the message about him from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. He's saying to Ananias, listen, you don't get this, but I've chosen Saul. He's my chosen instrument. So just trust me, even if it's a bit confusing now. Uh, And this shows us the second way that we should be thinking about how Jesus uses his power. We should expect to sometimes be confused about that. We should expect to not always understand what Jesus is up to. Because the thing is, Jesus is in heaven and he can see what's going on. We've got such a limited perspective that if we expect Jesus to do what we think is right all the time, he'll confuse us. And so we need to learn to trust that he knows what he's doing. It's often the way, isn't it? We often get confused by Jesus. We often face setbacks and worries. And we think, Lord, what are you doing here? Um, But we need to remember that the Lord is in control. Um, I used to work with university students in, uh, in a church in England. And at least a couple of the students that I worked with were very strongly atheists when they were at school. And they used to make life really miserable for their Christian friends. They used to kind of mock them uh, or debate with them. And if you'd asked their Christian friends, they'd have said, these guys would never become Christians. But one way or the other, they did. They became lovers of Jesus, uh, people who wanted to serve others. Well, perhaps it's like that for you in, in school. Perhaps there's somebody that you know who makes life very difficult for you as a Christian. And you can't really see how this is part of Jesus' plan. But the thing is, we kind of have to trust him. He does do these kind of things. He uses people that we don't expect in his purposes. And actually, we've got really good evidence for for why we should trust Jesus. We don't just have to take that on kind of blind faith. The second half of this chapter, we see Saul immediately going out and preaching about Jesus. He creates a massive stir. He almost becomes like a replacement for Stephen, uh, going and debating with the Jewish people, showing them that Jesus is the Christ. Um, Our sermon series is going to be coming to an end for the time being in in a couple of weeks. And so we're not going to look at the second half of Acts. But if we did, we'd find even more evidence that Jesus knows what he's doing. Because Saul becomes the Apostle Paul. And he becomes really the main figure in Acts. The guy who takes the gospel out across the world to Greece and to Turkey and to Italy. He's the guy who plants those churches that eventually bring the gospel here. Jesus knows what he's doing. He gives Ananias just a tiny portion of that plan, but we can see much more of it now. And we can, that means we should be able to trust him, I think, uh, even if we can't understand what he's doing at the moment. So, you know, who knows what's going to happen with, say, Ashes Bakery? Who knows what's going to happen over the next 20 years as Christians in this country? But we have to trust, don't we, that Jesus knows what he's doing, that he is in control. He's much wiser than we are. Jesus took the most stubborn, most stiff-necked persecutor of his early church and made him into the most important evangelist in history. He made him into somebody that the BBC is happy to call 
undoubtedly one of the most important figures in the Western world. That's how powerful Jesus is. He knows what he's doing. Okay, let's go on to that final key moment now in the final conversation. Uh, And that one takes place, um, Jesus isn't really in this conversation, it would seem. Um, Ananias goes and follows Jesus' instructions and finds Saul, and he places his hands on Saul's head. And he says this, verse 17. Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Can you see the dramatic sort of role reversal that's taken place? Saul came to Damascus to hunt people like Ananias down and to take them in chains back to Jerusalem. But now Ananias is coming looking for Saul, but not to attack him or to fight him, but to heal him. He comes and lays brotherly hands on Saul. And Ananias says to Saul, Saul, I'm doing this because Jesus sent me, because he wants you to be healed, to be able to see again, and to have his Holy Spirit. And this, I think, is the moment when Saul is converted, when he is humbled, uh, when he gets to see who Jesus really is, as he receives the gift of the Spirit of Jesus. And that, I think, teaches us something very profound about the way Jesus uses his power. Jesus could have very easily just killed Saul, couldn't he? He could have protected his church by leaving Saul dead by the road to Damascus. But instead, Jesus decides to restore Saul, to heal him, to make him the person that he could be. And he chooses to make him part of his purposes, And that means that the most powerful thing of all needs to happen. It's quite easy, isn't it, to kill someone. I'm sure we could probably all manage that if we really had to. Uh, But it's much, much harder to change someone's heart, isn't it? Much harder to change somebody from the inside out, particularly when there's someone like Saul, so committed to a completely opposite set of views. Someone like Saul, who had nothing to gain from changing his mind. Do you imagine how he must have felt the first time he met up with some disciples in Damascus? He must have been very sheepish, mustn't he? He had nothing to gain from this transition. He was doing so well as a, as a Jewish leader. He clearly had the trust of the high priest. But Jesus took him, and instead of just breaking him, he healed him. So we've seen Jesus' power in, in three ways, really. Jesus' power to protect his people his power to choose his methods. And now we're seeing his power to change even his enemies from the inside out. Now, even though we're not meant to sort of see ourselves as Saul necessarily in this story, each of us does have a similar story to tell, don't we? It may not be like a dramatic moment, just like this one. Maybe more of a process of years. But each of us has been changed by Jesus. Each of us has been moved from blindness, from loving lies, from living an empty way of life, to loving Jesus, to having a purpose and a hope. Uh, The Lord has drawn us to him and given us the power to follow him. Jesus has got the power to change even his enemies from the inside out. Uh, Some Christians have wondered recently if we should be praying those psalms in the Old Testament that speak of uh, God crushing his enemies and God's people praying for, for that to happen. 
Uh, particularly when you look at things like ISIS or whatever, should we be praying that ISIS should be crushed? Should we be praying that the person in our workplace who hates Jesus should be crushed? Well, I think we could. Certainly with ISIS, we might well say, we might well long for God's justice to come on that kind of people. But we have got a bigger hope, haven't we? As Christians, we're serving the risen Lord, somebody with power to change even his enemies. And so I think alongside maybe praying for justice to come, let's pray for mercy to come as well. Let's pray that Jesus would be changing people who hate him from the inside out. We can dare to pray that a Jihadi John, a Richard Dawkins, whoever the most hard-hearted person is that you know, we can dare to pray that their hearts will be softened and that Jesus will heal them. Some of us here will face real enemies this week. We probably don't feel like we should do, but we will. People who make our lives hard. Uh, People who we're afraid of. People who make us uncomfortable being Christians. Uh, It could be a difficult colleague or a boss or a family member or whatever. Well, I hope that you're praying for that person. And if you do, I hope today's story encourages you that that is worth doing. I hope it gives you hope as you enter this week that there is no one too proud too aggressive, too hard-hearted to be changed by Jesus. Jesus is powerful enough to change even his enemies. He did it with Saul. He can do it with anyone. And perhaps you're here this morning as somebody who does feel like you're at odds with Jesus. You've got a past. You've been opposed to him. You don't really feel like you could be the sort of person that Saul ends up being, somebody who loves Jesus, who serves him. I hope that this passage encourages you as well, that Jesus can change your heart as well. Just ask him to, and he will. Well, here's what to do then. If we're we're sensing that atmosphere of fear, if we're sensing a certain shyness in ourselves, if we're sensing a certain intimidation, here's what we should do. We should look at the Lord. Look at the Lord in heaven, seated high and lifted up, but yet concerned about us his body. Remember his loving power, that he wants to protect us and look after us, and he will do that. Remember his wise power. Remember that he knows what he's doing, even if we don't. And remember his merciful power, that he is able to change anyone from the inside out, even his enemies like Saul. If we do that, that will encourage us, it will strengthen us, it will help us to live as Jesus' followers, day by day. It'll help us to live in the fear of the Lord. Well, shall we pray to that Lord now and ask him to help us with that? Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, you have uh, opened, perhaps just a little, the, the eyes of our heart this morning. We've had a chance to think together about, about you, about the fact that you're alive and ruling and powerful. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you that we've seen that you have got power to protect us. Lord, whenever we're facing circumstances that we can't control, that we're scared of, uh, where we're feeling intimidated, we, we pray that we'd remember this, that, that you care, that you're involved, even though we can't see you. And Lord, we pray that you'll help us to have patience when we're not sure what's going on. We pray that we'll remember what you said to Ananias, 
the way that you said that you had a plan and we just need to walk in it. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to trust you even when our circumstances uh, are not something that we can understand. And Lord, we pray that you'll help us to have a big vision of what you can do. Help us to, to believe that you really can change anyone, that you've changed us, you're changing us, and that you can break down any barriers to you. Lord, we ask that you do that in our world. We ask for uh, all those people who have been recently uh, opposing Christians in, in all those different parts of the world that we've been seeing on the news, people who have been opposing Christians here in Northern Ireland, Lord, we pray that you would soften their hearts, that you would change them by your spirit. And Lord, we pray that you would be keeping on changing us, keep on encouraging us and comforting us, keep on helping us to live in the fear of you. We pray that for your name and your glory. Amen.